How you doing everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel the D3 Cohen. I am your host and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios here in my garage. I am a 19 year old musician, engineer, and producer and like many of you, I make records in my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hitmakers work from home studios so maybe we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the extreme privilege and, frankly, honor of speaking to the legendary engineer Shelly Yakis. We had a real great time talking about everything from his time working with John Lennon and the band to his personal takes on recording and engineering, as well as his personal history. It's a really cool episode. You can check that one out and lots of great music podcasts at our network site, pantheonpodcast.com. And if you want to find other episodes of Ready to Record, you can find them at bluegirlproductions.net or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, I have another really extreme pleasure. I am speaking to Bruce Springsteen's longtime engineer, Toby Scott. Toby Scott has an interesting history. Starting out playing in bands as a youth in Santa Barbara, he eventually found his way down to LA working in studios with some managing of bands in between. After some years in studios, Toby found himself in cahoots with Bruce Springsteen, eventually becoming his lead engineer until just a couple of years ago. Now, Toby is in Montana, running his own studio and working with a lot of smaller bands and really making them shine. And for somebody like me in a home studio, I think his insight is really interesting. I think you will as well. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mr. Toby Scott. Mr. Toby Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So... Obviously, you have a very interesting career with Bruce Springsteen, but before that, you were working at Clover Recorders in Los yeah. Angeles, and it's kind of a fabled place. What what was it like working there? Well, it, it was a one-room studio. Uh, musicians loved the place. You know, it was just very compact. I believe the recording room was about 30 by 30 with a uh, an extra room in the back, which occasionally we would put drums in the other room. But uh, it was just a, a funky little place, and uh, a lot of great records were made in there. What got you into recording in the first place? I mean, this is a very strange business to, to want to get into. I was playing guitar or bass or something or other in uh, bands locally in Santa Barbara. And then I changed over and started to manage bands. And... Through the course of either my great management or just dumb luck, excuse me, I got these bands to uh, recording studios in Los Angeles. And uh, it was kind of cool, the recording studios. And then uh, my third occasion into a recording studio was into Capitol Records Studio B. A friend of mine had a... Uh, a deal with the record company, and he said, "Yeah, come on in. You know, you can you can watch what we're doing." And I did, and I thought it was pretty cool. And so, I immediately tried to 
find out where I could get a, uh, a tape recorder that I could record in sync. The only ones that were made were professional ones, which were beyond what I could afford. But I finally did find a two-track machine that I could record in sync. And so I started recording at home. And then uh, after a couple of years, I was reading a magazine and TAC came out with a thing called a 3340 or 3344 or something like that. And it had four tracks and you could record in sync. So I got one and started recording. And I just recorded myself and bands and other people at home for, I don't know, I guess a couple of years. And then I just got frustrated and uh, decided I want to get a job in the studio. So I moved to Los Angeles and essentially after a period of time, and I started to put a resume around and got a job working at Clover. And uh, as it happened, I guess I was good at it because people came in and they wanted me to record them and do this, that, and the other thing. And one of those people was Springsteen. Uh, I didn't run into him until I'd been at the studio about three years. And the first time, it was just a brief encounter, and it wasn't until uh, 80 that he came in, and I ended up mixing the River album. And we got along really well, and that took a long time. But uh, I was doing all sorts of projects as just sort of a staff engineer, but I would go independent, and I'd go over to other studios and places like that. And uh, it wasn't until 82 that I mixed a record for Bruce and then he wanted me to work on his next record, which turned out to be Born in the USA. And so I uh, basically quit the studio, moved to New York and worked with him. And during that course of time, I also worked with assorted other people out of New York. And yeah, New York. A couple of times I, was, I would fly back and forth to New York to L.A. and, you know, occasionally pick up a job on the other side of the country. You have a lot of Springsteen, Born in the USA, Dancing in the Dark. Some of the the smash hits of of Springsteen, most of them, if, if we if we are being honest. So I, I have yeah. to ask, as being that you were Springsteen's longtime guy and as well as doing things on the side aside from his music, what was the workflow like between going from a Springsteen record to something like Blue Oyster Cult? Was there any mindset well, change for you? Not really. Gotcha. No, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, I can't simplify it, but... It, it's a job, you know, as the engineer, you're there to record whatever the artist wants. And so it doesn't matter whether it's Springsteen or Blue Oyster Cult or some unknown guy from Podunk or something like that. You go in and you approach the job with the intention of doing the best job that you can to make them realize their dreams, ambitions, or whatever of making a recording. I have a session day after tomorrow, but I had time. And so I'm setting up for it. 
I decide what microphones to use on all the different instruments and I plug them in and get them set up and it's the same routine. It doesn't matter whether it's Springsteen or like I say, somebody that's yet to make it. It's all sort of the same routine. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, there are some people that like to believe that for different people you have to put on different hats, but it's, I think the point that you're driving home is that engineering is engineering, whether you're recording a, a jazz album or a metal album, it's it's all the same process. Exactly. And I don't try and be an artist myself. Gotcha. In other words, <clears throat> that's part of the reason why I had a longevity with Bruce, is that when we're in the studio, and working, I am, I'm the silent engineer. In other words, he'll say, I want to record this or that. Okay, great. And I record it. The only time I provide input is if asked, or I can see that there's something that he's either missing and, and could be, uh, improving the record by doing this or that, or he's making a mistake that, oh, gee, this isn't going to work or something like that. And, you know, that's, it's probably stems up from, you know, most engineers all started out as assistant engineers. Right. And the philosophy back in the seventies was the assistant engineer shouldn't be seen and shouldn't be heard. He's just this little ghost that keeps everything running. And the good ones are those that can see that, you know, you're doing a guitar overdub and the artist is talking to the guitar player and the guitar player starts humming and singing or something like that. And the artist is like looking at it and going, hmm. Well, that's when the assistant engineer who's good will find a convenient time to leave the room, go out into the studio and set up a vocal mic. So that if the singer or the guitar player decides, hey, that's a good idea. You're humming that. Let's, let's sing some background vocals. You're ready. You make the engineer look great. And uh, you make yourself and the studio look good, too, because you're ready to do it. When you move on from being an assistant, you're a first engineer. Those are the sort of things that you want out of an assistant. Being an apprentice engineer or an assistant engineer, I would get a lot of looks, and yeah. that would that would dictate what I was supposed to do. Right. And the other thing that I was want to get at is that, as far as I'm concerned, the engineer is not an artist. He may be in his own right of, oh, you decide that you're going to put a slap and stuff like that. <clears throat> you know, when I hear a track being made, and they're practicing it or something like that, I sort of hear in my head a concept of what it should sound like. And I tend to push it in that direction. You know, if it's a rockabilly song, you know, you're, you're tapping your foot, you know, oh, hey, you know, this could use a good slap on it. So, blah, 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 you know, if you know what I mean. Right. But what I don't think is that the engineer should be an artist more so than the artist. Now, I, like I say, I'm pretty silent and quiet during the course of the session. I attended another session where I was a supervising engineer, and I walked in, and it was during the course of a mix. I walked in, and the engineer, the mixer, 
was getting ready to play it for the artist. The artist hadn't yet arrived. And this guy has got like a beret on, a scarf wrapped around his neck a few times, smoking jacket, cigarette in one hand, and a glass of brandy or cognac in the other. And the artist walks in and he goes, oh, hi, how are you? Yeah, we're all ready for you. And, uh, well, let's, let's just sit down and listen. Hey, do you want to smoke or a, a, a glass? And the artist was someone who did not smoke or drink, but was very tolerant of this mixer. And I was sitting there just going, my God, this guy is, he's more flamboyant than the artist. And, you know, we were dealing with him because he was somebody we wanted to mix. He did a good job. But... You know, that's the case of the mixer, the engineer, was more of an artist or coming on like an artist than than the artist. I've seen other instances where, oh, in the days of analog, when you had a five-button remote next to you, Mm -hmm. and the producer would say, okay, we're going to punch in at the second bar of the second verse. And the engineer would sit there next to the remote and make a big deal of pressing the button and pulling his hand off of it and oh there you know and just to do the punch in and then when you do the punch out oh you know lay in the wait for it and then hit the button and throw his arms up in the air there got it you don't need to do that it just takes one finger to press this button you don't need to use your whole arm on it but it's a big it's a dramatic display of look at Look at me. See how good I'm doing. I'm really making a big deal out of this. I'm not that way. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, and perhaps that's a, uh, it's a, it could be a benefit and could be a detriment because I don't make a big deal out of what I do. You know, people don't realize that I'm doing something or I'm, or I'm doing it well. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, Blue Oyster Cult. I was working on their record. They, uh, the guys, they had made made some recordings, a bunch of them, and the producer had uh, been with them on all of the recordings and many other records too. And I got a drum sound, and and they came in the room and they were listening to it, and they go, "Wow, that sounds great! What are you doing?" And I go. Nothing. I go, no, no. What, what, what are you doing? What, what, what sort of equalizers do you have on? What sort of compressors? And this, and I go, nothing. It's just microphones in front of the drums. But they're the right microphones pointing at the drums in the right area. And they're like, my God, it sounds great. Let's start recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, let's not make a big deal. Okay, it sounds great. You know, and on, on the same session, you know, a few days later, we were doing a guitar overdub. And I put a mic up and I don't know what I did, but uh, I didn't have much going on. And the producer came in and he listened to it and he went, that guitar sounds fabulous. It's great. This is perfect. It's, it's just great. And he goes, what do you do? And I go, not much nothing you know a little high end on this little eq or something like that i think i think that's the that's the 
the common trope, right? Everybody wants a ton of gear or thinks that they need a ton of gear. They don't really. They they just need to know what sounds good and, and strive to achieve it with what what's in front of them. That's the perfect example. You can throw mics up without having to do a lot of processing ahead of time. I mean, sure, there's, there's plenty of uh, good go-tos as an engineer. You can go for any number of EQs or compressors and go into many a different pre, but at the end of the day, it really is, you know, mic placement and, and mic choice as well. But I, I would venture that placement over mic choice is a bigger deal, especially when you were talking about drums. You know, mic placement is everything. Sometimes less is more. And, you know, I didn't make a big deal out of it. I mean, I could have told the producer, Hey, I'm using this and putting it through that and processing it this way. Oh, man, it took me 20 minutes to dial in this great sound and everything. And he might have then said, wow, it is great. It's sensational. Let's let's record and print this guitar track. But I didn't. I just said, no, I'm, I'm not doing a whole lot to it. I, I put the microphone in the right place, and it's a good microphone, and the guitar, the amplifier sounds good, and we have that tone and everything, and that's it. And away we go. It's just all a matter of perspective, you know, like I said, maybe that's the reason why people weren't going, oh, man, let's have him back. Geez, he was doing a sensational job. You know, I try and uh, just do the job, and I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Sure. It doesn't need to be made into a big deal. Right. As far as microphones and other equipment, placement and what, what sounds good is is king, but as as far as go-tos for you, what what do you what do you like working with? What as far as microphones? Yeah, say hypothetically you have a drum session. What what are you going to? What what's your at your right hand? My original go-to drum setup was a uh, AKG four twenty one on the kick drum. I've used an assortment of things on snare drums. An SM fifty seven is kind of standard, everybody sure. uses that. I've used an eighty seven on a snare drum. I've used a Sony ECM five thirty, a little tiny or electric condenser microphone on a snare drum. I've used a Sony C37 on a snare drum. So that's the options. Uh, let's see. One time, what was I doing on the top? I would use two microphones on a snare drum, a KM84 underneath it on the snares, and then something else on the top, but I can't think what. I tend to not go for the SM57, the pedestrian 57, but uh, I will use it because it it generally sounds pretty good, especially on a snare drum. Right. Snare drum and a guitar amplifier that's kind of their foolproof uh, forte is that. Hi-Hat is a 451, AKG 451. Gotcha. Tom-Toms, I was a big fan and used Neumann U67s on Tom-Toms. Wow. Overheads, I would generally use 451s as overheads for the cymbals. Gotcha. It's sort of... You know, you go into a studio, and each studio has their own little setup of microphones. You kind of go in, and you go, "Okay, what am I? What have I got a mic, and what have I got to mic it with?" Right. And uh, when I did Born in the USA, I went into the power station, and uh, they didn't have any U67s. And I went, "Well, that's my microphone that I want to use on the two Tom Tom." And I go, "Well." We know a guy that works over at Sony, I guess it was, or Columbia, but he's got some. I got a hold of him. The guy was Dave Smith. He was quite a famous digital engineer. 
I got a hold of them and I said, hey, I hear you got 67s and I want to borrow them and like that. And I said, he goes, what do you use them on? And I go, Tom Toms. And he, I don't know, I guess he had enough faith in me. He said, okay, sure. A lot of people, if they owned U67s, would go, you're using them on drums? Are you kidding? Because it's, it, you know, back in the, when was that, 82, they weren't quite as revered as they are now because they were still a standard right. microphone. But, you know, uh, you know, and there's others, if I had them, uh, a guy I didn't work with him, but I knew him and I knew what his setup was, uh, uh, Val Garay. Mm. He did a lot of records over at the Sound Factory. And uh, the Sound Factory had, geez, I think they had six or seven, maybe eight Telefunken 251s. And Val would use them for overheads. It just depends on when you move into the studio, if you're an independent engineer and you go in, you take a look at their mic list and their list of outboard equipment. And then you operate appropriately using the best mic for the best to get the best sound out of any particular uh, instrument. Sure. And the same for when you're plugging in the console, depending on the music, but as a general rule, I'll, sometimes I'm just lazy and I can plug it into the console. If it's a good studio and I have an SSL and they got a bunch of outboard gear, I might put a lot of microphones through outboard mic preamps like uh, 1073s or what's the, LA 610, I think it mm -hmm. is. Something like that, just because SSL mic trees aren't the greatest in the world. Neves tend to be a little bit nicer, smoother, clearer, and have their own thing. You know, like I say, you just go in and you sort of appraise what do you got? What do you need to do? You make the most of sure. it. Sure. I find your choice of kick mic interesting. When I, th when I think of a 421, well, a lot of people use those as Tom mics nowadays, so I find that really interesting. Oh, yeah. It just happened to be the mic at the time. I've used assorted mics. Now I use a uh, D112. There was a predecessor to it, which I've used. And I've also used a uh, RCA44 really? on a kick drum. I have to understand that some of my miking techniques were derived from guys that had been around a long time. Sure. Like the one producer that I worked with, uh, Steve Cropper. You know, this guy wrote Green Onions in like 59. Right. His engineer that he worked with was Tom Dowd. Tom said, oh, well, let's try this. Tom never gave me advice on microphones because I had learned all the different microphones to potentially use from Steve Cropper. And Tom Dowd had taught, taught Steve what to use. So we never had a disagreement on microphones, you know, where to put them and how to do it. He would say, oh, you know, have you ever tried it this way? You're young, so you may not be familiar with Tom Dowd. Look up his name and his history. There's a movie about him. Was it uh, Tom Dowd and the Language of Music? I think so. Yeah. And I know when, uh, who was it? I was uh, at a seminar one time, and Al Schmidt was talking about how he learned and grew up. And Tom Dowd was one of the people that he looked to that taught him recording techniques. And so, you know, I was lucky enough to work with a guy on a couple of records, two or three. They had started in a time when there weren't these condenser microphones. You know, 
a U67 was the predecessor to the U87. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where they used them. Well, you were talking about consoles, and I'm, I'm, you, you were particularly yeah. referring to SSLs. Is SSL your go-to for a desk? If I'm mixing, yeah. Gotcha. I've worked on, oh, jeez, I made up a list one time. Probably got it around here somewhere. Uh, I've worked on probably 10, 15 different consoles. The standards nowadays anyway are Neve, API, and SSL. Years ago, before digital, engineers planned, if you could, with the producer, planned on how to create a record and make the overall sound. And Neve's consoles and APIs have a lot of transformers mm-hmm. in them. So they tend to sound a little bit meatier, heavier mm-hmm. sounding, thicker, maybe warmer, if you call it. SSLs, I don't know how many transformers they have, in them, but they tend to sound brighter, harder, maybe harsher to a certain extent. They've kind of gotten away from that when they went to the G-series. So oftentimes, if you're deciding what to do and you don't mind the studios, you'll want to record the basic tracks on an Eve or an API because you get this good beefy sound on tape and then you mix it over an SSL because the, the EQs are very versatile and they got a built-in compressor and everything else. And then they do send, tend to sound sort of bright. And SSL had their total recall and their automation right. system uh, pretty well down. And so that's just, you know, it's one of the ways you decide what you're doing and how you're doing. Sure. You know, again, it's just like picking microphones. If the producer comes to you and says, hey, we're going to record this album together. I got these five guys of the band, and uh, I want to do it in a, a small, intimate studio. Where would you suggest? Or I want to do it in a big room. Where would you suggest? And you think about it, and then you figure out well, what type of music is it? And so what sort of a sound are we going for? And then uh, then you decide. Now, anymore, there aren't a lot of big room studios. I'm trying to think the A room at A&M in Los Angeles is fairly big. Right. Capital's still around. Yeah, Capital A is still fairly big. And they can actually open it yep. into B. Uh, I think Paramount Studios still has a fairly sized, fair sized room. How's Sunset Sound right now? Their rooms probably haven't changed. No, they haven't changed. Uh, actually, the biggest room that I just read about in one of the trades was uh, some guy bought and preserved the RCA room in really? Nashville. RCA had built three big rooms. They were like probably 50, 75 feet wide by 100 feet long and ceilings probably 30 to 40 feet high. They're big rooms, and you can you can do things in, right. in big rooms. And then you know, then there are other places. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with A&M Studios. Well, it's not A&M. What is it? Henson Henson Studios. Now, they have uh, three rooms. At least the last last time I checked, I'm recording them all, and you know, it just depends on what you want to do. Now, for you, what is roughly your favorite room to work in? Power Station. New gotcha. York. If I'm recording a rock record. Even strings, pretty much anything. Second after Power Station would probably be Henson in LA. The reason, just to validate this for all your listeners out there, why did you arrive at that? The Power Station was the first room. It was 
designed by uh, Tony Bon Jovi, John Bon Jovi's uncle. And Tony engineered a lot of the Motown hits in Chicago. And he got tired of doing that. He moved back to New York, designed and built the power station. It is very engineer-oriented, everything. I mean, the walls in it, the design of the whole place, it is incredible. The location of where's the outboard gear, where's the patch bay, how big is the console, where are the speakers, can you move around, everything. Designed by an engineer who knew what he was doing. A&M, well, excuse me now, it's Henson Studios. Those rooms out there, Shelly Yakis and uh, Jimmy Iovine got the money, did a tour of the world, looked at all their favorite good studios, and they redesigned what was A&M Studios into the new A&M, A&M, and those rooms are very good as well. Because they're designed, you know, the layout and everything is by an engineer. I didn't really talk much about the redesign with Shelley when I spoke to him. What I did hear from him was... Uh... Was he was he was quite happy with it. He, he's he's quite proud of that one. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that was something uh, I had been in A and M Studios when it was still A and M owned by right A and M, uh, and they were, I, I I learned something because they had a uh, they had a thing where all of their consoles were sitting at waist high, and you sat on architects chairs. And I can you do that when I built, I don't know, four or five studios with Springsteen, uh, I always put the console up so that when you're standing, you can reach your hand down and touch the knobs while mm-hmm. you're standing. You don't have to bend over. Now, if you sit in a normal desk chair, it's going to be, you know, the, the faders and everything are going to be at your chest. But if you then just use an architect's chair, which sits higher by about six inches, six or eight inches, then you're just fine. And the thing of it is, is that you can easily transition from sitting in that architect's chair to standing up and looking over the console and moving around very easily. It's ergonomics, you know. That's why that power station is ergonomically set up so that you can record and set up for the engineer. Since we're on the topic of studio building, you have your own studio in Montana. Yes. A couple of questions about that. My my first is mm-hmm. kind of an obvious question, which is what, what made you choose Montana? And then I guess the second more studio-specific question is, is what inspiration did you take in building your studio from the others like Henson Now, formerly A&M, or Power Station? Well... I started out work in Los Angeles. I worked there for approximately seven years. Uh, almost the entire time I was employed by Clover, but doing independent work and going around to other studios in Los Angeles. Then in 82, I moved to New York and started working with Bruce and various studios around New York. And again, was coming back to Los Angeles on occasion to do jobs. And I think in 89, Bruce said, hey, let's move all that stuff out to Los Angeles. So I think we were working on a record. Yeah, he wanted to work in Los Angeles. So I moved to LA and uh, was living in a hotel and working, geez, we worked at three or four different studios. I wanted to find a place to plant myself. 
Now, unfortunately, a few months before, Bruce said, hey, we're going out to L.A. I had just closed on an apartment in New York City. And so, you know, here I am. I got a brand new, nice apartment, and I'm not going to be living in it. And so I ended up renting out my apartment and being in L.A. for, I guess it was a year or something like that, a year and a half. And uh, Bruce took care of me very well with, you know, whether it was in a hotel or house or apartment or whatever. But I wanted to find a place to, like, plant myself. And I'd lived in L.A., and I didn't particularly like it. New York was good, but we weren't there. Right. And it happened that for my time in L.A., I had friends that lived in Los Angeles. Well, one of them, uh, who was an actor, he had moved to Whitefish, Montana. And he would come back to L.A., and I'd see him, and he'd go, oh, man, you got to come up. you got to come up. So finally, after about a year of his hounding, I came up and visited Montana. And it just felt right and like home. And houses and property was dirt cheap. Sure. <laughs> I, uh, it was just extremely cheap. It isn't that way anymore, especially since the COVID virus set in. Everybody from California, New York, Texas, and everywhere else wants to move to Montana. And they ran the prices up sky high. But back in uh, 90, the prices were still low. And so uh, I checked into real estate and I ended up buying a house, even though this is a small town and a small area, you know, in population flights between to get back and forth from Whitefish to Los Angeles was fairly easy. And so I bought a house and, uh, you know, when I was back in LA, I told Bruce, I said, Hey, bought a house in Montana. He was like, what? I said, okay, I can get back here whenever. He said, okay, well, as long as you can, get to be where I need to be, then that's fine. That's what brought me to Montana was a friend of mine that encouraged me to come up and I fell in love with the place. And as far as my studio, once I got established in Montana, I, uh, I had sold a house in uh, Santa Barbara and I had money that I had to spend from this house in order to not, be, not suffer capital gains. And so I bought a building in town and uh, it, it would just rent it out for a number of years. And then finally, I started to decide, well, geez, I, I could really use a place to do some engineering here. I sort of subdivided the building and built a control room and a vocal booth and a main room. And uh, over the course of the last 10 years, sort of a, gave it an acoustical treatment where I didn't have the, the means or the, or the methodology to turned it into the power station but I got a local contractor and I said hey I want to we got to acoustically treat this because the studio room was uh just basically four sheetrock walls mm. and a sheetrock ceiling and the the reverb in there drove me nuts people that weren't engineers they'd go in and they go gee it sounds fine to me and I go no it's terrible it's terrible <laughs> got this contract and I showed him pictures of the power station, the mm -hmm. A room. And he goes, Oh, and I said, I know how this is built. Cause I knew Tony and I talked to people. I said, well, you, what you got to do is we got to put an offset off the wall and then do this and that and everything. And I get, okay. And so he did it. So now the walls and ceiling in my studio look like the power station. 
you know, they're not quite as precise with the acoustical treatment and everything. But uh, it's good, though. It's great. There's not a lot of reverb in it. But if I put a drum set in there and I put a room mic up, hey, the room mic makes a difference. And all of a sudden, you can hear the room, and it's cool. So that. Uh, my control room, I have not treated. It is still four sheetrock walls, but I did put up my own acoustical treatment. I have panels that I built and put up around on the wall. And so there's not a whole lot of erroneous reverb uh, in my control room. Let, let me ask, you, you, you've designed your main room, your live room, after the power station's live room. Is it roughly the same dimensions? Oh, no, not at all. Gotcha. No, my, uh, uh, this building that I purchased, there was just, uh, uh, there was an open space. It was like, I think it's like, it's like 30 feet, about 30 feet deep by 20 feet wide in one spot and about 26 feet in another area. And I just put a wall that created a, basically it's about 14 by 15 foot control room with a 15 by six, seven foot wide hallway that I use as a vocal booth at times. And then it left the studio as sort of a long rectangle with kind of a uh, trapezoidal shape at one end. And so, no, it's, it's not at all. The wood looks like the power station, but the design and dimensions of the room are nowhere like it. You run Oratone sound cubes. Yeah. Now, I, I do want to get into your mixing choices because I found, I found your, your mixing philosophy quite interesting, but I'm, I'm interested since you had a choice like sound cubes, what, what gear were you drawn towards when you were building out the space? Was there anything that you looked at that said, oh, this, this fits this room perfectly? No, everything that I chose for the room was uh, out of experience and history with it. Like I say, when I worked at Clover, we had speakers up in the wall. It was a George Osberger design. And then originally, there was a pair of oratones that sat on top of the console. And we would go back and forth between the big speakers and the oratones to decide whether the mix was right or not. Then, geez, I think it was probably 77, 77, maybe 78. Um, I didn't like the big speakers up in the wall. And so I bought a pair of 718s, Yuri 718s, which do your research. It was a time-aligned speaker. And I set them up on stands in front of the console and used them for a couple of projects. Then the studio owner, we ended up mounting them up in the ceiling in place of the George Oxberger. But around that same time, uh, one of the producers I worked in with walked in with a pair of NS10s mm -hmm. and said, hey, these, these are kind of cool because, you know, they're smaller. They're bookshelf speakers. And they were bigger than Oratones, but smaller than the big ones up in the wall. And so we started using them. 
I've been using them ever since, geez, late 76 or 77. As a matter of fact, the pair that I've got in front of me right now are one of the original pairs. And by original, originally they had grill cloth and they were designed to stand right. upright. But my, mine are laying on their side, but the Yamaha label is on its side. And uh, I don't have the grill cloth in front of them because I've replaced the, uh, the tweeters of the new style tweeters. Uh, but there are the holes for the grill cloth. And I still have the grill cloth somewhere around my studio here. Uh, but the Yamaha NS10Ms are a studio standard. Right. I think if you go into any major studio in the world, they may not have them up on the console, but if you ask them if they have NS10Ms, they'll go, oh, yeah, we got a pair in the back yeah. room. They're just undeniably, you know, they're like ground zero for good speakers. And you know, when I bought the first pair, 300 bucks for a pair of them. You can still pick up a pair of Yamahas on eBay for, well, probably closer to 500 bucks. But everyone, magazines from mix to recording engineer, producer, what is it, uh, Sound on Sound and out of uh, London and Tape Op and others, they will say, it's sort of a weird sounding speaker. But if you get a mix to sound good on Yamaha NS10Ms, it will sound good everywhere. Right. It will sound exceptionally good everywhere. And not to, not to discount them, but if you get a mix to sound good on a pair of barefoots or ATCs, it's going to sound good there, but maybe not so much on a pair of Genelites or a pair of KRKs or somebody's home speakers. Right. That's the thing. The Yamahas just, you know, you control the internet and uh, that's just the way it is. And so I have the Yamahas and the Oratones and then I have a little tiny pair of uh, Yamaha computer speakers that uh, I have also as sort of an extra. Gotcha set of speakers but uh you know i always i always like to quote my, my good friend bob clear mountain in that when somebody was asking him well those yamahas you use them exclusively and he goes yeah and i think they were interviewing him out in a big studio and i said well what about those speakers and they point up to the speakers mounted in the in the wall above the console and he goes well, none of my friends have speakers that size at home. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just perfectly correct. I mean, Yamaha's, Yamaha NS10Ms sound terrible as bookshelf speakers oh, yeah. at home. Yeah. The only place the only place they sound good is basically about three to four feet away from your ears in a stereo pattern aimed directly at the mixing position. Mm-hmm. You know, and in some instances, you have to watch out how they're actually sitting on top of the console. You know, there's, there's a couple of companies that make these little rubber foam insulated hydraulic pads right, the, that you put the decouplers on so that they're not vibrating. Right. Like, 
Yeah, decouplers. It's it's like, you know, if you know what you're doing, a pair of Yamahas can get you a good mix. Right. Well, I mean, as I I find it interesting that that when people use NS10s as their as their primaries, because you know they are they are the I think I cannot tell you how many engineers I've heard this from uh, say NS10s they're everyone's favorite B speaker, you know. And so rarely do you hear about people using them as A speakers, but if you think about it, it's a really good idea. I mean. They're terrible sounding speakers, so so if you so if you get a great yeah. mix on them, of course it's going to sound good everywhere. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's along the theory of uh, years ago uh, when you'd master a record and get a record mastered. Every major mastering facility, you know, from I don't care where, from Bob Ludwig's place in New York or wherever it was, or to Bernie Grunman in Los Angeles, any of those people, you'd you'd cut the lacquer and then to test it and see if it sounded good, you'd take it to a turntable that was, they used to make like a boom box, Mm -hmm. except that it had a fold out, it had a fold out turntable. These were the funkiest record players in the world. I mean, it was built into a box that was about, I don't know, two feet wide by 18 inches high and about, you know, 14 inches deep. And you could pop the thing open and you put a record in there and set the needle on it. It was a crummy needle, crummy stylus. The tone arm was crummy. But if it played on that, it's going to play everywhere. So that was the, that was the, that was the test. You know, and that's the Yamahas are still sort of of that same thing. You know, you get it right on that, it's going to be great. Right. Everywhere. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that in the course of mixing between my Yamahas, the R-Tones, and then this little extra little pair of computer speakers, uh, I and most all of the other engineers that I know. You know, the one mixer that I'm fairly familiar in front of with is mm-hmm. Clear Mountain. Uh, I've sat with him on many of mixes, and he's mixed more records than probably anyone else in the world. Right. I mean, it's it's like in the thousands, thousands. Right, he's, he's got... Of probably he's got albums, not just Right, he's songs. got mastering engineer numbers. Yeah. I think most of the guys, they all do it the same way. You listen and get your mix at a reasonable volume which is generally around 90, 95 dB. It's not loud. And in the course of mixing, you bounce back and forth between like your Yamatas and your Oratones, and then maybe you throw it over some other speakers. The the trick or the technique is at some point when you're fairly comfortable with the mix and you're checking things, you turn it up really loud and you hear it over the Yamahas. Now, I know all the guys that depend on Yamahas, we can do a mix and turn it up to a certain volume. The woofer is bouncing out like we expect it to at that volume. And and you're not, you know, it doesn't sound dull and doesn't sound too bright and everything like that. You know the mix is pretty good. But you turn it up really loud and then you turn it down really quiet. And then you put it on the oratones. 
and you may not turn them up that loud, but sure. you turn them up louder, and then you turn them down really quiet. Yeah. And you just test it at, you know, three different volumes on two or three different speakers. And the other thing that I do is I tend to start mixing with my uh, monitor controller in mono. Right. If you can hear all the instruments in mono, they're just going to sound great in stereo. Right. Of course. I feel like that that's actually a really good point. People, especially modern engineers, because a lot of a lot of us are starting in home studios with very little mentoring. I was I was fortunate I got that that experience, but I know a lot of my contemporaries, especially my age, aren't getting that at all. And and mono is generally forgotten by a lot of them. So mixing in mono is a really helpful tool. Me personally, I I attempt my I don't really have a very good monitor controller, so mine doesn't have a mono button. I can put it in mono, but it's a little bit difficult. But I generally, because my my mentor always taught me, you know, start mixing in mono, you know, check in mono, what I'll do, I'll start my entire mix in mono. The It's probably one of the last things I do is start adjusting my pan pots. So mixing in mono is a, is a great, great tool. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the other things you were you were talking, saying the guy that mentored you and helped you along. That's something I I, I would in, enjoy uh, a part time career of speaking at engineering schools. Sure. Because there's a lot of stuff that they don't teach students. One of my my points that when I'm talking and I've spoken at a couple of schools is I tell the the audience of all these aspiring engineers I go. When you finish here and you get your degree or your certificate or whatever they're going to get you at the end of your year, mm. two years, three years, four years, whatever sort of school it is, my advice is to go to a city of your choice that is big enough to have a half a dozen commercial mainstream recording studios. Apply at every one of these studios. And you're probably going to have to get a job as a waiter or something else. But you apply at those studios until you get a job. And if you're lucky, you will get a job right away. And even though you're, you have been deemed by your school as a certified first engineer frontline guy, your job at these studios is going to be probably an assistant to the assistant. If you're not a janitor or a gopher or one of those things, but if you stick with it, you will get to become an assistant on studio on sessions and, and humiliating or whatever you may consider it. This is an opportunity that you will be in a commercial studio that's charging big bucks for their studio time, which means that the engineer and the producer in there are all being paid big bucks and they are smart. They've been doing this for a while. And the producer and the engineer, they're gonna be working with artists that are going to, all three of these people are gonna give you input that you can learn and grow from. The engineer will teach you this, or you'll see a different engineer do that. These engineers will be passing in front of you on a daily or weekly basis. And 
the artists, the genre of artists will be changing every time there's a new session. You know, you might get on an album and they're doing basic tracks and so you do a heavy metal group for a week or two weeks. And then all of a sudden the next week, a different producer comes in and he's bringing a jazz group or a solo piano player or this or the other thing. I said, you're going to get a vast amount of education and eventually there'll come a time when you will then be engineering and it'll be you on the line. And you can do this and you start engineering. You will build up a, uh, a list of producers that like what you do and they like you. And then eventually you can go independent. But if you graduate from school and take a loan out and get $20,000 or $50,000 worth of equipment and move it into your bedroom or your garage and you advertise yourself on Facebook or whatever, right. you aren't going to see those people. You're going to stop learning. You're going to stop learning and stop growing. You know, I mean, you'll be able to do your own experimentation and the local bands and the local talent that you get into your place, they may have some ideas, but the thing of it is, is that they're local. So they don't know the difference between an SM57 and a Telefunken 251 and why you would use one over the other in different situations. So that's why I encourage everybody that's an aspiring student to get a job in a commercial studio. And I have a whole list of job opportunities for engineers because uh, there again, I was, I think it was at the AES a year and a half ago or something like that. And I was standing around talking to Clear Mountain. I was telling him about my thing. And he goes, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. He goes, all these kids that come out of engineering school, they want to be me. And they'll never be able to do that because they don't have any reputation. So nobody's going to hire them as a mixer, you know, unless they do somebody that all of a sudden they got a number one hit, which chances of that is slim. I said, yeah, I want to be you as a mixer, or me as a recording engineer, or some combination of the two. And uh, that's the case. And so the only way you get to that is by putting in a lot of time at a commercial studio. You know, the, the 10,000 hours rule does right. not work when you spend 10,000 hours by yourself at home. Maybe it does if you're a computer sure. programmer, but not an engineer. That's 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 my advice to your listeners out there. Right. Wonder what I mean, to do. Yeah. The, to do it. There's there's definitely a a lot of push towards working from home. I mean, obviously, you know, I I have a home studio. Uh, I'm sitting in mine talking to you right now. You know, and and yeah. it's it's a wonderful thing to have a home studio. And if you're doing primarily your own work and you feel comfortable doing your own work, great. You know, I've probably saved myself a lot of time, energy, and money right. by being able to have my band over and experiment with various things based on solely the fact that we could record it ourselves. But if I were... But if if I were I, I, going I to you know, and if if I had a, a huge plan to market myself as a 
as a you know recording studio open to the public which you know I've I've done uh, some outside projects not a ton but you know I've done a few and again it's the local thing friends and stuff like that I'm for of course you know being in San Francisco and connected to the music yeah. scene I'm fortunate to have friends that know the difference between a 57 and a, a an i5 or a 251 but it, it's still you know if, yeah. if you're gonna get the big uh if you if you want to get the big name or have have a lot of big experience you do want to go find yourself a, a, a real studio it's just a matter of what you want to do in this day and age uh, i have a kid that i mentored now he has a record deal and he records his own stuff He's been doing it since college, and uh, he started out on GarageBand. And when he asked me, you know, how he how he he could improve, I said, "Well, stop singing into the microphone on your laptop and get a snowball or something like that just to get away from the the laptop. And if you want to get a little bit better, move to Logic or go to Pro Tools." And so now I think he has a Pro Tools studio. But uh, he, you can do it. Uh, you know, I, I also say if you're an artist, once you just be an artist, get some friend of yours who has an in, right. has a studio, like you and your your buddies. If one of them is singing and playing, writing songs, he goes, "Hey Daniel, right? Can we come over to the studio? Will you record me for every minute or hour that you are not writing a song, perfecting a song?" or practicing a song because you're learning how to engineer, then you're not being the artist. You're being the engineer. So that's why I say, get a friend. Don't learn how to do it. You know, if you want to record something, record it into your phone. It'll give you an idea. There's, you know, there's a half a dozen world famous songs that were recorded into cassette players. I have an entire album with Springsteen. It was recorded into a cassette. This was a really interesting conversation for a few reasons I can think of. For one, Toby is an old-school engineer. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Toby comes from a school of thought where the engineer is the engineer, the producer is the producer, and the musician is the musician. And as we can clearly tell by that last little bit of our conversation, he really sticks to that ideal. Now I understand it, and frankly I agree with him. If you want to be an engineer, be an engineer. If you want to be a producer, be a producer. And if you want to be a musician, be a musician. For people like me or some of you listening out there with home studios like me that might not be something we can achieve even though we can't live by an idea like that i still think we can take away something from that philosophy namely one thing comes to mind if you have a home studio my recommendation to you would be to not get too big into the studio equipment itself and not too big into your engineering prowess. Now, I don't deny it. I love my 
ideas and my job as an engineer and producer. In fact, earlier today, while recording this, just a few hours ago, in fact, I finished doing an edit job for a friend and client and collaborator. But even so, I still want to put my musicianship first. And it took me a while to get back to that idea, but it's something that we really have to pay attention to. As home studio people and people who self-engineer and self-produce, our musicianship and our practice as instrumentalists, singers, whatever you consider yourself, should come before our practice as engineers and producers. Now, I don't think we should be poor engineers and producers, and hopefully, if you judge this podcast, you'll know that I take my engineering production very, very seriously. But we can't let it surpass if our main goal is to be a musician. On par? Certainly. Be as good of an engineer as you are a musician. If you can do that, you you have my pride and my respect. Well done. But you should not be striving as a musician and as a self-recording artist to be a better engineer than you are an artist. Let me rephrase that. And let me ask this in the form of a question. Would you rather have a really good song that wasn't the best recording ever, but a fabulous recording of a meh song? Personally, I would take not as good of a sounding recording and a fabulous song over a subpar song but a fabulous recording. Now, I don't think that you guys will end up with subpar recordings and fabulous songs. In fact, I think you guys will get both. But I think that in order to get good songs and good recordings, you have to have the good songs first. Song always comes first. And I think that's something that Toby has driven home for us, even though it's not directly stated. So I challenge you guys. For the next month, and I will do it with you, spend at least 20 minutes a day on your instrument. And maybe you record your practice, and maybe you don't. But I think recording your practice might even be a good idea because not only will you be able to practice your instrument, but you'll be able to practice your recording techniques. And it's a great way to understand how to improve because you will have an archive of where you started. Shoot me an email to show support for this and let's get a conversation going. In fact, do me a favor and tag me on Instagram at ready to record. Let's get this going and let's make sure that we have some damn fine songs at the end of this month. Hopefully, we'll have enough to compile and maybe even show in a future episode of Ready to Record. 
Toby, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. You have given us a lot of fabulous insight, and I think what we've talked about today will help a lot of people understand how to be better engineers and how to have better musicianship as self-engineering people. If you want to find Toby, go to his website, tobyscottaudio.com. My recommendation to you would be to go to his info and about page and send him an email or question. As it says on his page, no question is dumb, no ambition too high. Doing what you love means you never work a day in your life. Feel free to contact him with projects and questions. He'll be happy to hear from you. And I'm sure you'll actually get some really cool insight, just as I did with our conversation. talk and today I want to change things up a bit and talk about instruments specifically parts casters now parts casters are a big thing in the guitar and bass community because they're easy to build relatively affordable and highly customizable short of getting a custom guitar like a Federa or a Fender custom shop instrument or Gibson custom shop instrument or a small luthier somewhere a parts caster is kind of the best way for you to get a custom guitar tailored just for you. Now, in my case, I've built a few basses this way, but I plan on building some guitars this way as well. Technically, I've also built a guitar from parts, my Les Paul, but I don't necessarily count that as much because it's not a caster and you can't really choose a body and neck. You kind of have to start there. Now, in the case of my bass guitars, one of them comes to mind in particular and that one would be a jazz bass that I built out of a Squire body and neck. Now, this bass started life as a Squire vintage modified 70s. This was before it was a classic vibe series instrument. Jazz bass with a maple body, a maple neck, and a maple fingerboard. Interesting thing about when I bought it was I paid 60 bucks and got just the body and neck, knowing full well that I was going to be building this out. Eventually, I stuck some custom shop 60s pickups in it, a really cool stacked pot control plate from 920D Custom, and some 70s aesthetic hardware that, in fact, the bridge even harkens back to the 60s. It's a really interesting case of 70s aesthetic, 60s tone. And frankly, I think it's one of the cooler instruments that I have built and played. Now. Is it the best jazz bass I've ever played? No, but is it up there? Yeah, it's fabulous. And if you can do something like this, it's something I highly recommend, especially for studio guys like us. We can build instruments that fit what our studios make music-wise. And if we have clients, I know I certainly have in the past before the pandemic and even now, we can give ourselves options as to what those instruments can do relating to who we have in artist-wise. So let me know if you've ever built a parts caster. Let me know if you've ever considered building a parts caster. And if you have built one, 
Tag us in a photo on Instagram, at Ready to Record and at Blue Girl Productions SF. I'd love to see your instruments. I'd love to see what you're working with. And if you record them, maybe send along a video or an audio clip. Love to hear it. This is music from Blue Girl, and today I wanted to share with you guys a very, very new, rather unfinished song that I'm working on. This is a 90s-inspired electronic song. It's kind of in a similar vein to another electronic song I have shown off before, a few episodes back. And I kind of wanted to make this one in a B-side fashion to give this sort of a double single vibe. So if I wanted to release it as a pair, I could. Now, I'm not done with this one. It still has quite a ways to go. I need to finish out the arrangement. But I really like the intro, and I really like where it's going, so I wanted to share it with all of you. So without further ado, here is my next electronic music project. Enjoy. That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. A special major big thank you to Mr. Toby Scott for coming on the podcast. Man, it was such a great time having you on, and I'm sorry we didn't get to talk more. It was a lot of fun chatting with you. Tune in next time. We're going to have Mr. Craig Dreyer on the show. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. I've known this man all my life, and he's a really cool dude with a really cool studio in Brooklyn, New York called Mighty Toad, and I think you'll really enjoy this episode. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing off from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. <laughs>